to the Faith Church Estevan podcast, the podcast where we post our previous sermons from previous weeks. And our prayer is that it would grow your relationship with Jesus. Listen wherever you are and enjoy this next episode. Good morning. How are we all doing? Good and great. That's good enough for me. So today, we are continuing through our series in Revelation through the seven churches, and we get to an interesting one because it's the smallest town that exists out of the seven. Super tiny. It's like, uh, what's the tiniest town near here? Huh? Rosh Percy. Hey, there we go. Rosh Percy. What? Ralph? Rolf? It's like Wolf, smallest, least important town of all the seven, and this town's called Theatira. Now, we don't know much about it because little still exists that mentions it, which would, you would make sense of when it's a small, tiny town. But yet, out of all the letters, this is the longest one. And so what do we d- infer out of that? That just because it's small doesn't mean it's insignificant. Just because it's small doesn't mean it's not worthy of careful attention. This letter is also the fourth letter out of the seven, which means it's in the middle. Which in the ancient way of structuring, writing letters and doing things, it indicates that this is the heart and center message to all seven churches. And as we will see, it's a theme, uh, same theme in this letter. You get a commendation, an exaltation, a lifting up to the church, but then also a corrective. And one scholar says all the letters deal with the same theme, it's faithfulness to Christ in the midst of an often threatening worldly culture. Faithfulness to Christ with a surrounding society that's threatening. So Theatira, they do a lot of good things, but they also are prone to a problem, which is tolerance with the surrounding society. This is a kind of church that's prone to tolerate sin in its midst in a way it should not. It's a manifestly loving church, which is awesome. It's a loving church. It's admirably admirably positioned in the world in the right time, in the right space. But because of that, the love and being in the world at the right time, it's presented with the threat of becoming part of the world over being distinct. I think that's every church in all time. The family is always on the verge of the threat of either becoming part of the world rather than over being distinct from it, right? We're supposed to be called to distinctness by Jesus. And so we're going to hear Jesus' words here, and we have to remember this is Jesus talking through John, and we're going to see what he says about his church through praise, peril, and promise. And so if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn with me to Revelation 2, 18 to 29. If you, this is just a reminder, if you don't have a Bible and you want to look at it yourself, it is on the screen, but it's also, we have Bibles in the back, um, and that's on, it'll be on page 1090 if you grabbed one of them. So these are Jesus' words to the church in Theatira. It was written to them, but it's for us today. Jesus says, write to the angel of the church in Theatira. Thus says the Son of God, 
the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I do have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sick bed, a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Theotira, who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter, and he will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. It's the word of God. So Jesus, right off the bat, gives them praise. Typical theme in this letter. I know your deeds, I know your works, your love and your faithful service, your, your service and your faith, your patient perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. This church has been off to a really good start. Their love more than they did at first. That's what everyone dreams of and wants. They've made progress. Not just individual Christians, the whole church is growing and maturing. I say make that so in all of the churches today. <laughs> that we would grow in love and not regress. That we'd have love in our hearts for each other, our neighbors, our city, and do tangible acts of love to meet the needs all in the name of Jesus. Jesus praises them for their loving works that they do and their love for each other. He also says in verse 24 and 25, he gives another commendation. I say to the rest of you who don't hold to the false teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, I'm not putting any other burden on you, only to hold on to what you have until I come. He's saying, those of you who are holding true, you'll be fine. I'm not going to make your life even more miserable. So Jesus is lifting up the church at Theotira for its good works, for its act of love. It's a very loving church, and that's a really good thing. There are good and faithful people in the chairs in Theotira. Even though there are some falling into tolerance and compromise. And so what we take away from that is we shouldn't just presume that everyone in a church is as tolerant as those who are. If one church has a few tolerant people, we shouldn't just presume that they're all the same way. There's good and faithful people in tolerant churches. Because this church still meets practical needs in its society. If you go back to the first letter in Ephesus, we saw that the Ephesian church was the opposite. They did really well at crossing their uh, doctrinal T's and holding to the teachings and not wavering at all, but they sacrificed what on, on the flip side? Their love for each other. 
their love for their community. So they crossed all their faith lines and their truth that they held, but they sacrificed love. Theatira, on the other hand, really good at loving, not so much at holding to the truth. But they have a lot of love, and but we can't presume, just like we can't presume everybody's tolerant, we can't just presume just because they're loving, everything's kosher and good. That there isn't some kind of problem. Because Jesus moves on from there real quick. He says, hey, good job, love you, you're doing great, here's my problem. Nevertheless, I have this against you, Jesus says. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads many servants into adultery and eating food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. That's the concern. You're tolerating that woman Jezebel. You have tolerance. Tolerance in and of itself is not necessarily a problem. It's really not. Tolerance can be a good thing in the right place at the right time. It can be a good thing in the right place at the right time. But it can be an extremely bad thing and produce deadly compromise in the wrong time and in the wrong place. You you see, we have this kind of tolerance in society, in this public domain that we live, that allows people with different religious beliefs to live together in peace and respect each other as human beings, slowly degrading in our world today. But we do fight for that as Christians, for this religious tolerance in our society as a whole. We advocate for it in the city, in the province, the nation, not to punish or discriminate against groups for their religious beliefs. That's a good type of tolerance because we all want to worship God. And if we fight back against them and say, well, we're not going to be tolerant then we're going to lose some of what we can do. And so we collectively come together for the good of all people. We don't say we believe in what they believe, but we also want to continue to worship in a way that's good and healthy for the kingdom growth. That's a good type of tolerance in the right place at the right time. But this distinction needs to happen between the church body and the city or world than the way we live. It's critical to keep this in mind as we wrestle through what it means to be the church. You see, the problem with Theatira was their tolerance in the wrong place at the wrong time. They were very admirably tolerant of different views in their town because they still served the needs of the people around them. Most of them were Roman citizens who had a bazillion gods and did a lot of immoral things, but they still loved them. That's a good type of tolerance to love them. We have to remember they are in the world. We all live in a world that's broken. They were cultural uh, cultural affirmers and participators in their culture, just like you are. They are out there doing acts of love, but in that wide, indiscriminate love in the world that they had, they became undiscerning within their church family, which can happen to large-hearted churches. It can happen. In the midst of their love everybody mentality and go out there and do things, they became undiscerning within their own space of worship. 
They were tolerating in God's house, among God's people, what they should not tolerate. And they were tolerating a leader whose name Jezebel, which I don't think was her real name, but that's just the name which we'll see in a minute why. Because she called herself a prophet and was teaching and seducing God's people away from the truth. Could have been a literal adultery or figurative, or I would say both. Leading people astray. She professed the Christian faith and its teachings, but twisted it. And so the name Jezebel actually goes back to a symbolic, uh, it's, it's symbolic for a Jezebel that existed, which was proverbial for wickedness. One of the most evil figures in the history of Israel in the days of Elijah the prophet. We had a, a king named Ahab who was Israel's most wicked king to that point. I mean, there was a lot, but he was the most wicked one to that point. He did evil first by taking a wife named Jezebel from the king of the Sidonians. This is all in 1 Kings. It was a marriage of compromise and tolerance. She worshipped the false god Baal. And he married her, and soon he compromised, tolerated, and started worshipping that god too. And then Jezebel went even further and used her power as queen to kill the true prophets of God that were telling everybody to turn around, repent, and go back to God. She threatened to kill Elijah as well. And she kept inciting Ahab, the evil king, to do more evil. She was terrible. Ahab was terrible. But in the end, Ahab and Jezebel did not escape God's judgment. God avenged the blood of his prophets. Those who were murdered were avenged by God's judgment. Jezebel was thrown out a window and trampled underfoot, and dogs ate her flesh just as Elijah the prophet that she wanted to kill prophesied. It's kind of dark and gross. Don't be a Jezebel. I don't think anyone wants to get thrown out a window and have a dog eat your flesh. All that to say this. Theotira is facing characteristic temptations of their day, just like the Israelites did, just as Ahab did. It should not come to a surprise to us that they're living with the same temptations as the Israelites back then, as we are today. It shouldn't come to us as a surprise, because guess what? We live in a broken world full of hate, full of sin, full of darkness. But yet, in the midst of all that, we can still grow in love, professing Christ. But there's always that temptation to cater to your fleshly desires and the social pressures from an unbelieving world that surrounds you. Every generation of Christians face this, and they face a question. And the question is, here's your question. What in the world, in the world, do I embrace when it comes to culture, and what do I reject? We have to wrestle with this. The Theatirians had to wrestle with what, what in the world do I embrace, and what do I reject when it comes to culture, when it comes to society? I would say in some sense today it's actually much worse and much more complicated and harder. Our culture has changed a lot in 2,000 years. There's been the collapse of the moral. I mean, you can't tell anybody what truth is because they can say, well, that's not my truth. Well, that's, that's not truth either. You don't know my truth. Yeah, it's wrong. But we sur- are surrounded by that all the time. That's your truth. If I say, God loves you, oh, that's your truth, not mine. 
No, that's not my truth. That's what this is. Life's a lot easier if I, I don't follow all what says in, it says in here. The outcome is mostly important. We've also had communication tools and technology increase, and now it connects us with people and ideas and ideologies and different things from all over the world, far away, and you don't ever have to see them face to face, which makes things a lot harder because it's a lot easier to be a jerk and, and very mean when you know you're never going to meet this person. They should just require everybody to put their address on there, and number one, you'd, you'd either get your identity stolen, or two, you could go find the person that's a jerk. Be a lot less opportunity to be mean if you know they can find you. But it's complicated. It's not an easy question what to embrace, what to reject. It's not easy, especially when we live in the swirl of temptations today. So this question is relevant for all time. It was relevant all the way through. You see, Theatira was a working class community, worked hard. I would assume Rolf is too. <laughs> but they had to deal with economic pressures. Who deals with economic pressures today? Do you see the gas prices? If you haven't, don't go back and look. It's terrible. But they dealt with economic pressures because you had to work to make a living so you could buy just bread. We all do that. Most of us will be eating bread soon. No more steak. Unless you kill the neighbor's beef, you know. But they had to either, they had to decide a, a thing, okay? Economic pressures. They were part of this thing called the Workers' Guild. It sounds like what? A union. In Theatira, there was a Workers' Guild, and you got all the benefits that came with it. Conferences, feasts beyond feasts. You had security. You had a group of people. You were in this great bond of people in your society that you work alongside. So they had to answer their question, what to embrace, what to reject, because if you were a part of that guild, that means you have to go along with all the false religions that came with it. The food you eat at the conference is going to be the food that's sacrificed to a God you don't believe in. Idol worship. But if they denied it, then they got kicked out of the guild. Well, guess what happens? Now you're ostracized. You're not getting any economic security. You stand out. You're not invited to anything. You're just out there on yourself, by yourself, all alone. So they had to wrestle with what to embrace, what to reject, and are they willing to throw away Jesus for it? And so how often are we tempted to just go along with what society serves us? Whether it's in a job having pressure to affirm something or what your entertainment involves or your political expectations that you're all in on the left or the right, anti-racism, nationalism. I mean, we have the whole gamma of spectrum today. And how often are we tempted to just go along with what we're being served? And so you have to ask yourself, what is it today for you, for us, that makes sin look normal and righteousness looks strange. Because let's be honest, it happens. What is it today that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange? I mean, we're, we're indoctrinated with information all the time. Whether it's movies, television, sports, news. 
or just everyday interactions with other people. You see, the problem in the church in Theatira wasn't just tolerance. It was their battle with worldliness. A tolerance with just the world. And the worst part of it all was there was someone in the church teaching from a sophisticated point of view a form of tolerance that led people further away from the truth and from God. I don't know what she said because I wasn't there. But perhaps she was teaching the deep things of God. It's a form of Gnosticism. It's been existing forever that there's deep secrets of God There isn't, because Jesus calls it the deep things of Satan. What you need to know about God and who he is has already been revealed. And the best part is the fruit of it is salvation for us and an eternity in heaven. There is no deep secrets. God laid it all out there. We just can't understand it all, because we can't understand an infinite God who's omnipotent. So she was teaching deep things of Satan, leading people astray, saying, it's okay eating the food that sacrifices somebody else. Even though God says no, we say yes. It's okay. Times have changed. Have you ever heard that before? Times have changed. So there's judgment going to happen. All of this could sound familiar if you go to specific worship services in places, even in this own city, that have become very tolerant of the world, accepting everything as is, because times have changed. They've become tolerant to the worldly demands of conformity. And so Jesus has a response, and he responds to this compromise, to this tolerance, with a beautiful thing first, patience. The first thing Jesus does, you would assume, would just be like, no, he comes in with patience. Because we read in verse 21, he gave her time to repent, this Jezebel. You see, Jesus doesn't just rush into judgment. He gives time and patience. That's a lot of patience and kindness out of love. Leon Morris says, how amazing is it that Jesus will still always hold out the first, the prospect of mercy. The prospect of mercy. It's noted throughout the whole book of Revelation. It is full of severe judgments, yes. It's true. The whole Bible is full of judgments from God. But there's always a prospect of deliverance and patience, and love, and forgiveness to those who, what, repent. He gave her time to turn around and come back to him. We can easily confuse patience with tolerance. Jesus isn't being tolerant. He's being patient, because patience is not indefinite. Because the second part of the response is his judgment. Never gratuitous, never overdone, never too harsh. He said, I'll cast her on a bed of suffering and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. So what do we find? We still find grace in the midst of judgment. He's loving, he's patient, he's not going to just sit on it all day. He's not tolerant. But yet in the midst of judgment, we'll still find grace. And in that grace, we get to receive a promise. Because he doesn't end with judgment, he gives a promise. He gives actually two beautiful promises in verses 26 to 28. And if we recap so far the promises we've gotten, we've got an Ephesus to eat of the tree of life. Pretty cool. Smyrna's promised not to be hurt by the second death and eternal separation from God. Pergamum, 
receive hidden manna and a white stone that allows you into the banquet feast of eternity. It's your all-in card with his name on it. And now in Theatira, maybe one of the best of all, I will grant them to sit with me on my throne. He says, if you're vic- to the one who's victorious, who has heeded my warning, who's repented and turned back to me, even if you have been tolerant, if you're victorious, I will... And do what I ask and what I say, which is for your benefit to the end, I will give you authority over all the nations. You will sit on my throne with me. You will rule them with an iron scepter and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. That's from Psalm 2. Just as Jesus received authority from his father. So Jesus, the God-man, received authority to rule over the nations and now he's going to give that to us. Not only is Jesus as Messiah going to be king of the nations, he gives that kingship to us as well. And then at the end in verse 28, he says, I will give them the morning star. Who knows what the morning star is? You don't have to respond. It's okay. Because I'm going to tell you anyway. But first, I'm going to do a little explanation. Because the planet Venus has long been known as the morning star. Did you know that? Look at us learning today. Venus has been known as the morning star because it appears on the horizon just before the sun comes up. So now when it's not cloudy and snowing or windy and blowing, get up before the sunrise and look. See if you see it. If you don't, then my research was wrong, but that's what the research said. It's been cloudy, so I haven't been able to tell. But it's known because it appears just before the sun. And when you see Venus, guess what you know? The sun's coming up. Morning star. Day is at hand. And so this morning star represents a hope for a new day and that the darkness is soon going to be broken. Remember that. The morning star that you are given means the the darkness is soon going to be broken because the sun will shine. The morning star is Jesus himself. He even says so Um, later on in Revelation. He says, I have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. That's the greatest possible thing he could promise you and his church family is that he's giving you himself. Isn't that awesome? I just love that. Literally get the morning star. He gives us himself, which means we'll get to see him face to face and not just read about him. We will be his and he will be ours and our final reward is to be with him on his throne as heirs and rulers in his kingdom. Today is the day to start this journey with Jesus full of love and devotion because he's given you himself through the sacrifice on the cross to repent and be cleansed by his blood. He's risen to new life to give you a new life, to give you purpose and meaning. He's given you hope for a new day where the darkness will be broken as the bright morning star. He's given you victory over sin. He's given you victory over Satan. So point being, Jesus says, I love you. I'm patient. Just turn to me and it'll be great. Don't tolerate everything. Know when it's right. Be discerning. Check it with scripture. I've given you everything you need to know. And so may today we turn to him, our bright morning star, our king of kings, our lord of lords, our savior, 
because he calls us out of worldly tolerance and into his righteousness and great morning star light for our benefit, for our health, and for his glory. And that should make us turn in joy and excitement. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank Hey, thanks for listening today. May you know you are loved, you belong, and have a great week. God bless.